welcome back to another episode of So What Are We Watching? My name's Jay Pollitt. My name's Andrew. And this is our third episode. Last week we talked about reboots, and if you missed that episode, definitely go check it out. But to the main point, Jordan, what have you been watching? So, as we mentioned last week, there's a new film that has come out. The end of a franchise, supposedly. And that film is Jurassic World Dominion. Now, for our third film, I haven't seen this yet. I was going to go watch it on the weekend, but decided not to. But without saying too much, was it worth it? No. There's just so much disappointing stuff about this film. It has so much potential, you know, and it kind of has what... I mean, it's been described, it was, like, promoted as being, like, oh, the rise of Skywalker of the... Jurassic Park, Jurassic World franchise. Could you argue that The Rise of Skywalker was a better film than this? I'd say it's a better ending because at least it attempts to round things off with The Rise of Skywalker. Sure, it didn't do it well, but the thing is, this film could have literally been put, like, anywhere in the whole franchise. And I'm not going to spoil it, obviously, but it's like, the way that things do get wrapped up is just very abrupt and, like, feels like it was shoved in at the last minute. Because this is kind of like the end game film of the Jurassic Park like franchise series in a way, until they decide to you know do another reboot. Were there much stakes in this film? Were there m- many risks? You know, any major characters die? No comment. I'm not. I'm, I won't spoil anything about the film. But if you've seen the original, which I'm sure most people have, it's nice getting to see Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum all back together again. I don't know. It's just the way they... Is it like fan service? No, they they are like... They're relevant throughout the whole film. It's just... It kind of just feels... They're, they're the best part of the film, especially Jeff Goldblum. I love Jeff Goldblum. But the rest of it, like, I just couldn't care less about... They've got so many, like, human elements. It, it doesn't feel like a Jurassic World film. Like, there's no... Well, there's dinosaurs in it, but, like, there's so little of that content... Like, it's more... Which, that's surprising, to be fair, for, like, an end film from what they showed in the trailer. It looked like they was going to show off, like, plenty of new and exotic dinosaurs. I'm not a big dinosaur expert, so I'm not exactly sure. But no, I mean, I'll be honest, I've only seen the original Jurassic Park film before coming to watch this one. I generally understood... what I, I take it nothing in the films between this and that really change things other than i guess dinosaurs are living in on earth now because i would have expected it to be i don't know a little bit more dystopian in a way especially from the name dominion because you know it's like who's gonna become dominant like of the earth you know and i would have expected it to be just from the trailer and all that like a little bit more destructive but i have read some reviews like non-spoiler ones because I, i might still watch this i might not but from like what you've said and what Rios has said, it does sound really dis- disappointing, abrupt, and just how the end is. Just, I don't think you know. It, it. I still need to watch it in my own judgment, but I don't know. I feel like I've kind of already made my mind up in a way. Might just not be a great film. There's one line from Jeff Goldblum in the film which basically sums up how I feel about the film and he says uh jurassic world not a fan and that is exactly that's exactly how i feel about it <laughs> so uh we'll move on from that film 
and uh, I believe today we've got a film that isn't exactly new for Andrew's pick. So, Andrew, what have you been watching? So, obviously, I didn't really go to the cinema this weekend, and I just decided to stick something on Netflix. And a film that I haven't watched in quite a while, but I've watched, like, in the past, like, many, many of times, is a David Fincher film, uh, The Social Network. David Finch has also done films like Zodiac, Gone Girl, Fight Club, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He's done quite a lot of films. Seven, um, another good film, another great film. Did you just say that's on Netflix? Yeah. I literally was like searching the whole of my uni library just to find it, and I found it just so I could rewatch it for this podcast. I found it eventually so i watched it on dvd you mean i could have just watched it on netflix this whole time yes you could have watched on netflix the whole time because i remember seeing it on netflix a few times and i was just searching it yesterday and just hoping like oh it better be on netflix but it is there and i didn't have to type in david finch or anybody else i just typed in social network it just came up i mean i could have typed in facebook and it would have come up but for those of you that probably don't know what the social network is which you know it's it's a it's a great film it's basically kind of like the origin stories of Mark Zuckerberg in a way. It's basically like, you know, the origins of Facebook and the kind of like betrayal that went into it that kind of le- led to, you know, Mark Zuck and where he's today. It's a docudrama. Like a lot of other films that are based on true events, it does dramatize um, some of the scenarios a bit. So not all of it's going to be like, you know, truthful. All of it's going to be like fictional and just, you know, overdone a bit and I, I think mark himself just said you know it's kind of like a distraction for him that he doesn't he doesn't like the really real mark zuckerberg yeah the real mark zuckerberg mark zuck didn't actually like this film uh i mean obviously like would you like a film being made about you that made you into like you like know, a like narcissist light. because i i don't think in real life he was as like narcissistic as he is in this film but as he's portrayed um... but I don't know. I mean, I've heard things. Um, I'm not going to make any judgment. I don't know the guy. but I mean, I'm I'm in no shape or form a Mark Zork with support and all, but like, <laughs> Facebook currently is very dodgy, but the social network, you know, it kind of paints like, which at the time it was, Facebook has been like this like spectacle. It was a revelation at the time. Like, you I know, mean, the film, the film mentions at the end, like, oh, it's I think at the time it had like a hundred million users. Now it's like way past like a billion. Oh yeah, but Jesse Eisenberg's in this. Andrew Garfield, Justin Timberlake is in this. It's, it's a it's a great cast. It's a great story. One thing I just want to say about the Social Network is like, there's so many films which are like based on a true story that I just feel like don't hit it with me at all. Particularly like a lot of music films, um, so like Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man. Not saying that they portray things badly. I know Rocket Man was like apparently very inaccurate. Elton John said it himself. But it, does it kind of glamorize it in a way? Would you say glamorize the stories just in general? Like, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. But you've also got things like it's always like uplifting stories, whereas I feel like. The social network is like the opposite of that. It's not an uplifting story. It's more like this is went down. Da- this is what went down between Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Savrin. Because one thing I found was um, last year House of Gucci came out, and I watched that, and I've constantly ever since then like I, it's just a film I don't think should have been made because it's based on like the Gucci brand and all the different drama that went on, and obviously the the perhaps deaths that were involved. 
with that. It's just like overall, it felt like a story that didn't need to be made. So basically, it's hot about music, documentary, dramas, all that. But what about Social Network? Yeah, I think it does well. I think it captures very much like the personal story aspect of it. It's um, quite down to earth. It's not like like a um I said before like the other ones like it's like you know insp- inspiring and uplifting. It's more to do like I'd, I'd say greed and like fame and you know like what you know having something of your own will do to you and it's portrayed really well with Jesse uh, and Andrew and you know both their ranges in this is absolutely amazing i'd put down their performances as absolutely the highlight of this film i don't know why but Jesse just plays characters so well that you want to punch in the face i mean i love him as an actor but mark zuckerberg is a natural person i don't think i'd ever want to meet and if i did you know he scares me honestly he does scare me I think the only inaccuracy about how Jesse actually plays him is he's not that robotic, whereas Mark is basically <laughs> an android at this point. You know, he's like a lizard. What he does well is his um his serious scenes in this. Like, there's one scene where uh, he's he's basically having a court case with the he's basically in trouble with the two twins that he basically originally was going to make the website for the, the original Facebook website for the the Winklevoss twins, and their lawyer. Uh, since he's not actually giving him his full attention, he's like, do I not deserve your full attention? And he goes off, I don't know if this actually happens in real life, but he goes off on a full rant and just the way that the lines are delivered and all that, it's it's chilling and I love it. And it's delivered so well, the sound, the cinematography, just the, you know, it's, it's not like he's angry, but you can just see in his face, he's like, you know, just n- not happy and uh, I don't think I want to come across that type of person in real life. This this film is uh, a great gem with some great actors. It's definitely something if you have the time to watch it, like you have like two hours to watch. It's not that long, you know. If you've got that, that spare time at home, you're not doing anything. Definitely watch it because it is on Netflix. That does actually kind of lead me into what I was going to say about it. Is I enjoyed the film. But I do find some parts of the film do drag on a little bit, um, which I mean, David Fincher, he directed Zodiac, which I have the same feelings about Zodiac. So maybe it's David Fincher. Um, nothing against him, but there's so much. I don't know. I, I was more interested in like the personal aspect of the film. I'm a sucker for personal stories, but having... I don't know, I guess like all the legal stuff within it, it was interesting, but it didn't capture my attention as much as like some of the other stuff. I like the legal scenes. It was very intense because you saw like, you know, the success of Mark in this and then you saw like how he's getting in trouble with like the legal system. It's just like, oh, I wonder how he's going to get around this. And it's just the fact how he managed to weave his way around it. And even then, even like a lizard. Yeah, like a lizard, yeah. <laughs> that kind of moves us into our second act, where um, obviously one of the most significant roles in The Social Network is Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield is also a part of today's major film we're talking about, um, because we have now passed the six-month kind of curfew that we've given for spoilers for a specific film that came out last year, and that film is called Spider-Man No Way Home. This is our main topic for the day, this is what we're discussing, and... We're going to be discussing whether Spider-Man No Way Home can actually hold up as a good film if you take away all the MCU, all the other Spider-Man films. Does Spider-Man No Way Home 
standalone as a good film. I feel like how we should just start this off anyway is just like, did you enjoy the film? Did you enjoy Spider-Man No Way Home when it first came out? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was great. Because um... I remember uh, seeing it in the cinemas and I went to see it in 3D4DX like you should because it's a great viewing experience. Not for people who throw up very easily. Um, and I absolutely loved it. It was just like, I spent like a month like just, you know, trying to avoid everything on social spoilers because a lot of people a lot of us already knew that you know they had to be in this but it's just that hope of just like i hope that they are in it but i don't want to be spoiled for me see i was a little bit sadistic because i really hoped that they weren't in it just to see the entire fandom get so annoyed at like marvel and sony for like you didn't put andrew and toby in it um, oh, i was waiting for that the fact that they would have put these in the movie but they would have had like five ten minutes of screen time and to be fair Toby they Aguirre gave them plays a pizza guy <laughs> yeah they it was it would have been more like uh just like a stan lee cameo but you know what they did surprise them well um they how long were they in this for for like what 30 minutes or something like that like an hour like an hour they're in yeah, like the last wow. hour of the film yeah that's 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 pretty good Put it this way, Spider-Man No Way Home is the only film I've ever seen at the cinema where I've had that audience reaction that like you see on YouTube. Even with Endgame, which, did you say your audience like reacted to Endgame? My audience didn't actually react to Endgame. That was really weird because it's a very busy cinema. But this is like, like you said, this is like one of the first films that you I've see... been to the cinema and they actually interacted because like the, I just love it like when the audiences applaud and all that and it, um, obviously there was like a few guests for uh, Charlie Cox when he appeared but it's it's you know when Andrew Garfield appeared and then Tobey Maguire just the cinema just cheering and joy and it was just well, it was just the best in person experience it's basically like part, like, part of cinematic history at this point I love it well with Avengers Endgame I remember the only reaction there really was for me in that film was when Thor shows up for the first time after the five year time jump and everybody just burst out with laughter in the cinema i think the only thing that we had audience interaction end game was basically when steve picked up the hammer i feel like that's like they're very justified like thing because i feel like that's the only moment in that film that you can you know have someone kind of gasp or like cheer because i love how you just refer to him as steve <laughs> well he is steve steve i could rem uh reference him as captain america but it's just i like to call him steve because i like to think i know him personally. i thought you were gonna say like rogers or something <laughs> rogers <laughs> Um, you know, you look online and, like, you see videos of, like, people cheering when everybody shows up at the end, obviously, when he picks up the hammer. Well, that's probably US audiences. UK audiences are very boring. But then again, with No Way Home, I I, I want to say they cheered, like, five times, maybe? Charlie Cox as Daredevil, Andrew Garfield showing up, Tony Maguire showing up. I think when Doc Ock showed up, they might have cheered. And then when Andrew's Spider-Man saves MJ at the end of the film, we got quite a big audience reaction there. Enough about us just enjoying the film when we were watching it. We need to look back now and just think, does this film work well? What makes a good film? So in my opinion, like a good film, obviously, I think the most important element is the it needs a good narrative and a good plot. Because if you've got a film where you have no idea what's going on you're not going to i mean you might enjoy it under the influence of substances <laughs> but you might it's, it's just like yeah a good film needs a good narrative and a good plot star wars holiday special i'm looking at you i think you know it needs great performances obviously 
good cinematography, good editing, good sound. Just all the elements need to be good. I, I think the most important part is it needs a good story behind it. And that, I think, is the most debatable thing, really, is does Spider-Man No Way Home have a good, clear narrative that isn't tied to the rest of the Marvel, or I guess the Marvel multiverse? Well, I think it starts off stronger because, you know, this is, like, it leads directly on from the last film, which was uh, Far From Home. And this is basically, you know, like, it's it's a Spider-Man with his um, identity exposed. It's like, you know... It's no more hiding. Now he's just, he's got to be Peter Parker and Spider-Man at the same time. Like, you know, it's it's about him, you know, trying to balance that. And obviously now he's got this new thing coming into his life uh, after trying to correct it, which is basically more mess. He's somewhat involved in, I guess, because maybe he didn't, you know, screw up the spell, but he did go to Doctor Strange for that spell to make everybody forget and kept, kept asking and asking and asking. But I think from there, then it's more focused on, you know, let's get all these villains back and then let's not kill the villains off and then thinking, oh no, I've made a mistake. And then in the third act, when, you know, the two of the Spider-Men come in, it's about, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. The whole Um, message of the original film. I kind of like that it's Aunt May who actually delivers it because I feel like we've seen the whole well not we haven't seen it all the time but the Uncle Ben thing saying it and all that has been done quite a few times. It would have been a bit weird as well if after not seeing Uncle Ben at all it just shows up in this film says it, it comes and dies. up shows it, it Uncle Ben comes up gets killed by Goblin that would have been like you know the weirdest little bit of fan service I guess but it's but a nobody job. would care about the character because we haven't seen him before in the MCU. But, you know, it's it's main story. I do think it's a good story. What would you say makes a good film, Andrew? I feel like the introduction to the villains, and I still stand by this, but one of my favourite scenes in this film, aside from obviously the introduction of, you know, Andrew Garfield and Tom McGuire's Spider-Man, it's, it's got to be the bridge scene. Peter's trying to chase the uh, one of the heads for MIT, and, you know, there's commotion on the bridge. It's just like, what what's going on? And out of nowhere, Otto Octavius, a.k.a. Dr. Ock, just comes out of nowhere and confuses him for his Spider-Man. But it's just, it's the arms and it's the destruction. It's just the way it's shot. I I absolutely adore it. And then it's like, at the end of that bit where it's just like, oh, I've captured Otto, Green Goblin's entrance is chilling, which I do wish... It's there for like 10 seconds, though. (laughs) Yeah, it is there for 10 seconds. It probably is like, you know, one of the best entrances, but... I do wish that was extended a little bit, which I think it might be extended in a deleted scene somewhere, but I'm not too sure. So, um, I don't know. What is my favourite scene? You know, it's really not going to be anyone's top answer, but I really liked the opening to the film. Like, I remember just, like, having the biggest grin on my face, because, like, oh, this is... It's just a continuation of Far From Home. I think it's because it's a very chaotic opening, too. You didn't, you like, you You've know... You've got the talking heads playing in the background... Which is a great choice. One thing I do think about this film, it was missing Ramones. It would have been nice to hear like some sort of Ramones song in it. But yeah, no, like I, I guess it has to be the uh, just the entire um, Statue of Liberty scene. I thought that was. I understand that because it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun, and also like I love the fight, and I love that they like you know work together um, to basically defeat each villain and. I mean, do we call them villains at this point? Yeah. They were villains of like their original works. They were so. because they were villains in the original works, but coming to understand that, you know, like 
all of them are just a little misunderstood. It's just like, isn't that like most villains though? <laughs> I mean, you could say you know Thanos is a bit, a little bit misunderstood. You know, he 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 did genocide and basically killed half of the universe. Thanos but... was well, he wasn't understood, but misunderstood. Like you understand his intentions though. <laughs> he wants to bring balance to the universe. Uh, so we're sympathizing <laughs> with genocidal. I'm not mania. sympathizing. I'm just saying I understand like where he was coming from. He just went about it a very wrong way. Yeah. Um, but the Statue of Liberty scene, I understand um, why you like that scene. It's also, you think, oh, you know, it's a little bit, like, calm now. And then just everything uh, hits the bed with, like, oh, yeah, look, there's a goblin bomb inside of the um, the box thing that they send back the villains back home to. Um, and it's just like, oh, yeah, showdown between uh, our Peter Parker and Norman. And you know, then Tobey Maguire comes in, saves the day, and doesn't get a proper reunion with Green Goblin. Only gets like a glance, which I feel like you know that could have been done a little bit better, like the interaction. Because yeah, I feel like the only interaction he kind of has is with Doc Ock and maybe Sandman. I'm not too sure. Does he say anything? Because I know he didn't. The actor didn't actually come. In I for think the movie. he said something to him, but I don't think he got any something. Because when he turns back to normal, I think it's actually like footage from the original, like delete footage. Yeah, because both um, Thomas Hayden Church and Reese Evans weren't actually available to like be on set, so they were their voices were in it. They were authentic, not like computer generated. But uh, the reason Sam Man is constantly Sam Man and not Flint Marco, and the reason Lizard's always the Lizard and not Kurt Connors, is because they are both the actors weren't available. And I, it's something I do want to say is like a criticism. Thomas Hayden Church, I love you, but I, it did kind of sound like some of his lines are maybe being read from a script. Like, especially when... I think it's when we first see him in the film and he's like saying to Peter Parker, like, no, I don't trust you. I don't trust... It felt, like that. feels very, you know... A bit monotone. Like, yeah, it feels a bit forced. feels a bit, you know, just, just read, like, for the first time. But because I know Thomas Hayden Church is a brilliant actor i'm not putting that down to him sorry john watts i'm putting it down with directing <laughs> i will say one of the only issues i kind of had with this film was some of the designs now don't get me wrong i love the design for doc Ock, i love the design for electro uh and norman but i feel like you know kurt connor's i kind of liked his original design from the amazing spider-man i don't know in this the CGI for it wasn't the best, and he also was a lot more greener, like, you know, close enough to becoming, like, Hulk green at this point. I do actually think, like, Amazing Spider-Man, the original film, has got some of the best CGI that any Marvel film has produced. I feel like with, especially the more recent stuff that the MCU's been producing, a lot of the CGI just kind of feels very rubbery, and... Because I feel like at the moment now it's becoming quantity over quality because they have so many projects out now, like not only just movies but like shows too. One of the most least recently talked about was She Hulk and um, the CGI for that. A lot of it now is just becoming a bit rubbery and a bit like early two thousands kind of style. And you know... funny if it just went full circle and went back to early two thousands. <laughs> yeah, nothing can compare to that deleted scene from Endgame though. Oh, the amazing um, exclusive post-credit scene of the, the re-release. Of the whole keys and the phone. That was awful. But enough about 
ends again. We're talking about Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, Kurt Connors' design, not too big of a fan. Love his character. Do you feel like he could have been fleshed out a little bit more? Yeah, I think out of all the returning characters, Lizard just got, kind of got pushed to the side a bit too much. I will say one thing that I am kind of sad that he ends up destroying the, the Green Goblin mask. And I mean, I love his new look in it. You know, it's quite reminiscent of uh, the comics. And also you get to see Wilderfoe's face a lot more and more of his facial features. Because he's already got that, you know, kind of goblin sort of face. Like, he's, he's you know, he's, he's got a face built for it. He's amazing. But, you know, I do wish they could have at least kept the original suit for a little bit longer. Because he's kind of like, it doesn't... <laughs> it's like we said earlier, he shows up for like five seconds. And then next time we see him, he hasn't got the suit on anymore. He's destroying the mask. So it's like next time we see him, he's in sort some sort of like um, soup kitchen, and in the background you can just see him stealing a bunch of donuts. Yeah, I love that scene. It's like such that, a small detail. Was that detail Norman that or was that Goblin? Um, well, that's one interesting thing. One thing they did in this film that they kept from the original is uh, Willem Dafoe has like a natural gap in his teeth, but. For the original Spider-Man and for this film, whenever he is Norman Osborn and not the Green Goblin, they've kind of... They wore a prosthetic, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, he wears his prosthetic, and that's probably CGI in this film, to be honest. So he seems... Transformed. Yeah, and then when he's the Green Goblin, he's a bit more deranged. I feel like my, my only criticism of this film, and I feel like most people could clearly agree with this, but I get why they decided to do it is Ned for some reason being able to open a portal like I don't think the, the only explanation for that is something to do with his family being linked to wizards maybe that could be explored in the future but it just came out of nowhere like thin air well uh, you said you haven't seen Miss Marvel yet have you no um because I mean with what you just said about like maybe he's getting that power from like his family that kind of relates to Miss Marvel a little bit no spoilers because it's like not even been a week when we're recording this has been out <laughs> but yeah no there's i don't know it's like it kind of feels at this point like the mcu is just like hey let's give powers to everybody well you know what the ironic thing is about that so both versions of the spider-man uh both versions of uh, harry osborn actually became new goblin at some point so it kind of be ironic if Ned ends up turning to the Hobgoblin and we have like Gob, like, you know, new gob, Goblin. Gob, Gob, Yeah, Gob, Gob, yeah. We have, no. That's the next, that's the sequel to No Way Home. Um, Spider-Man, Goblin, no, <laughs> Goblin Way Home. Do you think at some point in the future, maybe on the new trilogy, we will see Ned come back as the Hobgoblin? I think it's inevitable, to be honest. Yeah, I think, you know... Better yet, do you think we could see characters like Harry Osborn and Gwen in this universe? Um, I mean, potentially, because I mean, like, right, I'm going to be fully honest here. I know lots of people have said, oh, I hope MJ and Peter meet together. Uh, I don't. I think it works more tragically that they don't remember each other, if you get what I mean. In regards to, like, the ending, uh, I do kind of find it is reminiscent of one of my favourite films, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I, I still haven't seen this yet. Well, you're going to have to watch it soon, because soon we may be covering it. Um, we have... Because um, obviously the whole concept of like Eternal Sunshine is forgetting, uh, like erasing bad memories from your past, and it's kind of got that in this as well. Um, not like bad memories, but obviously it ends with, oh, Peter Parker has to erase everybody's memory of him. Um, 
And then it's got the whole thing of like him trying to meet MJ again, which is kind of a thing which is also in Eternal Sunshine. I don't know if that's taken directly like within inspiration. Um, but it's just something I found. And I think it's kind of cool. But to those who think it's original, I'm sorry. It's not. Um... <laughs> Like I was saying before about Andrew Garfield and his performance, his range, he really does have some great range in this. And, you know, I feel like it's quite the um, redemption, I guess, to his Spider-Man. Because I always loved his version of Spider-Man. I always loved his version of Peter Parker. And I felt like it was civilian rated. But you I feel were one like of the OGs before suddenly it became cool to like those films. I am one of the OGs. And, you know what, I will be honest, as much as I like the Amazing Spider-Man 2 suit they use, I do wish they had used the original because I love the original suit. I don't know why. It's a little bit more levery in the, the eye like the um, the the eye hole things that you know on the mask. Uh like his visor is like black and all that. And it reminds me a little bit of um Superior Spider Man. But it's a very gritty, like dark Spider Man and I kinda like it. But Andrew Garfield has, you know, great rangeness and he's just he's he's it's it's a phenomenal performance. I do like that suit, but I mean, for me, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 suit is one of my favourite on-screen I get suits. why, because It reminds more... me so much of, like, growing up, like, you'd see Spider-Man cartoons and comics, and it, it just feels so much like what you'd see from them. It's, it's It feels very comic booky, Not so much comic book accurate. I don't know if it is or not. Uh, I'm not majorly into the comics. But it's very... I don't know. I just, I just love the suit. And obviously, as soon as everybody saw that in the cinema, everyone was like, it's Andrew. You know who it's going to be behind the mask. I feel like one of my favorite moments uh, of him performing is 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 when he does save MJ. I don't know. He's, he starts to tear up a little bit. And I felt myself like tear up a little bit. Come just like I still remember that scene. I'm just like that is such like a good like little arc to have. Andrew Garfield always just plays characters who you just want to give them a hug because he's. I mean, it's Andrew Garfield. I give him a hug anyway. But exactly. But it's like. You know, like, I, I'd, I'd happily hug Andrew Garfield. This is what this episode's turned into now. Um, Who would we hug? You decide. <laughs> but, I mean, like, obviously it's got some other great performances. Uh, I think Tom Holland's actually, like, at his peak here. I've kind of found, like, a lot of Tom Holland's performances in general are kind of the same. He's either playing just himself, or he's playing... He's always just playing, like that stereotypical american kind of awkward nerdy guy which is um, ironic for someone who's british but yeah and for someone who starred in billy elliot which is st still a pretty good film so but i feel like here he does get to show like somewhat of a range but honestly like andrew garfield and willem dafoe I and toby Maguire, you can't forget toby Maguire. i i think andrew garfield and willem dafoe are without a doubt like the highlights within the performances i think that they've got the best performances within the film yeah what would you say I mean, I I completely agree with, you know, Andrew Garfield and Will Dafoe. Tom Holland, obviously, you know, kind of the same character. But, you know, this it peaks at his Spider-Man in this film. I love Tobey Maguire in this too. Um, you know, it just reminds me of his Peter Parker, his Spider-Man. You know, the more, like, concerned, calm, kinder. Um, you know, the, our, our, the, the OG, like, obviously you got... Andrew Garfield, who is the OG, the uh, amazing Spider-Man. But then this is like the OG, like, you know, proper uh, on-screen Spider-Man. You know, I, I, I love Tom McGuire. He's been in quite a few films that 
I've watched, like Gatsby and uh, Prisoners. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, there's not much else I can say. It's just you have to, you know, watch him on screen and you just like, you understand why. Some other things I kind of find is like the cinematography, I think could have been better, perhaps. There are some just great shots. So like when Aunt May has just died and he's sat on the roof looking out J. Jonah Jameson's giving like a report and like it's all raining and it's got like that close-up of his face. I think there's beautiful cinematography there. Right. I like the soundtrack for the film, but I think it could have done a much better job of incorporating the themes from the other franchises, which it did do. Uh, both Andrew and Toby's theme play. Is anyone else's theme play in it? I think Electro's theme's in it. It would have just been nice to hear their themes more, and especially I think the best the biggest mistake they made was in the scene where you finally get to see the three of them swinging together. They should have just used the classic Spider-Man theme. Uh, not Tobey Maguire, not Andrew Garfield, not Tom Holland, just the main, like, the old TV show theme. Speaking of classic, the very end scene, you get the reveal of Peter Parker and his new life and all that and his new suit, which is extremely comic accurate. I'd say it's, you know, it's the it's the sparkly blue and bright red. And, it, you know, it... it it, it feels less like, you know, a stark, like, tech suit and all that, which is being criticised quite a lot in, like, the past films. And it feels more like this is, like, the, the actual origins of Spider-Man, which, you know, you, people could argue that the whole home trilogy is the origins of Peter Parker, of Spider-Man. It's authentic. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> it's authentic. It's, it's a great suit. I love it. And just the swinging scene just made me smile from my ear to ear. And it's just, you know, the close-up of his face before credits. So what I kind of find is, you know, despite all the fan service, despite all of that in the film, I do think it still stands alone as its own great thing. Anything that happens from, like, prior films is kind of explained in this film for your new audience member to understand. And I think it's just a great kind of coming-of-age story about a kid who is exposed to the world and needs to learn with help from his multiversal cells, if that sounds familiar, needs to learn the importance of um, responsibility. Would you say that's your final verdict on the film? Yeah, I think I do think Spider-Man No Way Home is a good film, um, which usually I'd rank MCU things kind of separately from regular films because I do kind of see it as like a long form TV show, but No Way Home, like I do genuinely think it just works as its own little story if you have any thoughts on spider-man no way home and if you have anything you want to add or if you think it's a good or bad film please let us know you can follow us on socials at so what are we watching and you also can comment on our podcast on the rss feed but yeah let us know what your thoughts are on spider-man no way home and if you haven't seen it and you've still listened, sorry for the spoilers. <laughs> the whole talk of Spider-Man No Way Home kind of leads us into our third act, which is our film news segment. And uh, the first thing in the film news is to do with Spider-Man No Way Home. Sony announced that they're going to be re-releasing Spider-Man No Way Home with an extended version titled Spider-Man No Way Home, the more fun stuff version. What's the official runtime of this? Do you know yet? Or have they not announced it? I don't know, but I'd imagine it's going to be 2 hours 50 minutes. 
I that I haven't just pulled that number out of nowhere. So basically, there was this huge con- controversy when the Blu-ray came out for Spider-Man No Way Home, and I've literally got it with me here. That they said there was going to include deleted scenes. It was going to include over. It said it was going to include 100 minutes of bonus content, including deleted scenes. When everybody gets the Blu-ray, suddenly it says over 80 minutes and not including deleted scenes. It seems that what Sony have been doing, and something that I kind of speculated they might be doing, is they're going to re-release it and obviously have these deleted scenes in it. So there was 20 minutes worth of deleted scenes we never got on the Blu-ray, and I guess add that to the already two and a half hour runtime, you've got like two hours, 50 minutes. What do you think they'll include in the deleted scenes? I wonder. Well, I think I think it was shown that like it, there's going to be more scenes with Matt Murdock, potentially a court case, possibly. Obviously, more scenes with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. I'm not sure what scenes specifically they will have, but here's we'll hoping see. for more Green Goblin scenes from the bridge because I, I do remember. I think somewhere online there might have been like some sort of leaked version of like a little tiny bit uh, of that scene extending, but I'm hoping there is more to it because I do want to see the uh, the OG suit uh, more uh, just before you know the mask gets unfortunately destroyed, um, which made me sad. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping I'm hoping there's more lizard as well because, like I said, we barely get to see any of him in the actual because film. Because he's he's like the most unused just kind character of there. in the whole of the film, and yeah, he's he's just there and it's like you know. While they all go in the apartment, you know, to try help cure them all or help them before they go back to the main universities, he's just sat in the van, the the feast van, I believe, is it? Yeah. Something I'm kind of interested in finding out is, will there be a new post credit scene? Deadpool. Deadpool 2 had a re-release version, which I've got on Blu-ray. And it features a post-credit scene which features Baby Hitler, which was not in the original theatrical cut. So I'm wondering if they will kind of follow, not have Baby Hitler in it, but have like a novel post-credit scene, possibly hinting at what Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are doing. Because uh, obviously the original post-credit scene, not including the Venom scene, was just a trailer for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which is already out now. So I don't see why they'd put that in like a re-release of a film that has been out for I months. hope if they, they don't have like a deleted scene that they may at least like uh just shot something while they could for the um this this edition of it of basically like you said seeing what their lives are like going back because I do remember in the Mason Spanon universe there actually is an MJ version that was cut from the original um the Mason Spider-Man 2. I, I feel like that'd be you know nice to you know that for Andrew's Spider-Man that he can go back and basically start over and not worry about Gwen because, you know, he's, he's managed to save someone. It's just like, well, I no longer feel guilty. And with Toby's, I love to see, like, you know, does he have kids? Does he, you know, is he married and all that? All we know um, is that supposedly he worked it out with MJ. So we know that they're together, but we don't know how far together they are. We don't know if they have a kid. Yeah, we don't know the ins and outs of their personal life. <laughs> Not to pry, but yeah. So it's been announced that this will play in the US and Canada on September 2nd. Tickets go on sale August 9th, and they will be announcing some other countries it'll be releasing to soon. Hopefully the UK. Um, If it releases in the UK, will you be watching this extended cut? Absolutely. I'm going to watch it. One thing I am kind of annoyed by, though, is like I said, none of the deleted scenes were on the Blu-ray. 
And I kind of feel like what they're going to do is once this is once this re-release has finished its theatrical run, they're going to release it again on Blu-ray, and then all the people who might have bought it for the special features specifically, which, by the way, all the special features which are on the Blu-ray, you can find on the official Spider-Man YouTube channel. So all of the deleted scenes and, like, the extended version are probably just going to be limited to, like, this one thing that you're going to have to buy separately. And I don't know, it just seems like a bit of a... Cash grab. A scummy move from Sony. It is Sony after all, so, you know. Regardless, I will still be watching this, if it comes to the UK. If not, like the Avengers Endgame one, I didn't think I don't think that came to the UK. Um, if not, let's just I don't know. Hope the best. Yeah, hope for the best. But enough about Marvel news. Here's a little bit of DC news, and obviously on the other side. On the other side, yeah. Um, obviously, I'm 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 not too big into you know the main continuity DC. Obviously, you already know that by now. Warner Bros. and DC are kind of developing their own like. I'd like to say black label content, like what, like you know, darker, kind of like what DC was criticized for years on, uh, before they tried to basically you know formulate their content into the more comedic, brighter content of Marvel. More on that later. But one of the films that did come out in, within like the past like few years was Joker, and for for a film that had purposely uh, had a small budget because Warner Bros. didn't actually believe it's going to be a success. You know, it did massively well. The main point is the official title for Joker 2 has just been announced. And it's kind of a weird one. I think it might be a French term. I'm not too sure. It's uh, The title is Folio Du, which kind of translates into Madness of 2, which kind of has a lot of people thinking about a couple different things this film could be about. It says here in an article from IGN, Folia do is defined as a psychological disorder where the same or similar mental disorder affects two or more people. Now, I have a few different things that this film could focus on. One of them, and I think a lot of people want to see this because probably a lot of people are probably sick of Margaret Robbie at this point. But some people are hoping this could introduce Harley Quinn, which would make sense because, you know, the Joker basically creates Harley Quinn. And... Maybe not the whole romanticized version that a lot of people like to do now with, you know, the whole Gerald Leto and Margaret Robbie, Joker Harley relationship. I feel like it probably focus on more the 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 sick, like abusive side of it, and I feel like that makes sense. Either that, or we could have not only one Joker but two Jokers. Because think about it, how many Jokers are there in a pack of cards? Two. Exactly, and. This being Madness of Two and also a condition that affects two or more people, I feel like they could even introduce like a second Joker character or maybe a third one. Because in the comics there is an arc where there's not only one Joker, not two, but three Jokers. And even then, like the end of the first film kind of hinted towards that, I guess. Kind of like foreshadowed maybe that there could be more than one Joker because like everybody's dressed up like the Joker. Everyone's being chaotic and causing riots everywhere. And I don't think it was actually Arthur Fleck's Joker that ends up killing Bruce Wayne's parents. It was more one of the followers, like, more one of the thugs that basically wore, like, the mask that was, you know, inspired by what Arthur Fleck did. I guess it's, like, the message that they try and do Spider-Man, but just, like, in a way that you shouldn't do it, is that anyone can wear the mask. (laughs) It's, like, the anti-version of a great power comes great responsibility. But I feel like it's because 
the whole ideology of a Joker is that. It's an ideology. It's like Joker is not like one specific person. Joker can be a lot of people. And I'm really excited to see what they do with this. I do hope it's got a little bit bigger of a budget too. I, I don't hope for it to be completely different like theme-wise, you know, like direction-wise in the first one. I do hope to keep it. But I do hope there's like, you know, a little bit more intensity and a bit of a gritty story and dark story because the first one itself is already like messed up and like, you know, quite... It was it was great for what they worked with. Um and I There's really that hope one scene where um he's dancing in the bathroom just after he's um he shot those um uni like young freshmen on the train and all that and he just starts dancing in the bathroom and it's like a really powerful scene. There's that one scene um where he just like lets that guy go. Um Gary, is it? I yeah. Think. After he kills um is is it Rascal or something like that? He ends up killing something like that. Randall? Randall, not Rascal. Yeah. I mean, he is a Rascal for giving Arthur the gun. I've never seen a... If you could even consider this a superhero film. Because, I mean, it's within the genre, I guess. But I've never seen a superhero film that get this so, like, existential and deep and dark. Like, I came out of it genuinely feeling like crap because... It's... I'd say m- most of these superhero films is it's more like you know it's like it's a it's a journey it's a ride. While this was more like it was like a, a heartfelt story and it felt like actual cinema. You know, it felt like you know it wasn't trying to be something else. And also, it it like Joker's origins has always been like you know like in the air. There's been so many different variations, but I feel like this was like a very like down to earth, very saddening, very like you know he just wanted to make people laugh and all that and he did something else but it's you know i i absolutely loved it yeah i mean i like i right i like the film and i have to praise it highly because of just like how it made me feel but when you watch things like taxi driver and king of comedy you can't help but feel that like it was influenced by those films well yeah it was influenced by them um but it's just like it's different yeah it's hard to fully like commend a film when it's kind of based off works of other people, if you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few things about the sequel here. Supposedly, at the time of making the first Joker film, uh, Todd Phillips had no plans at all to make a sequel. And I think that shows, to be honest. And he did say himself that he would not return for a sequel unless he could find some thematic resonance like in the first movie but now he's directing it so hopefully it's not going to be one of those sequels that's just there for no reason although i think we can all agree at the end of the day if it wasn't for money they would not be making a sequel to joker but hopefully it's still a good film another recent superhero film announcement is marvel studios reportedly have a new film in development uh based off the infamous team from the comics known as the Thunderbolts. Now, isn't the Thunderbolts actually like a team of villains and not superheroes? Kind of like the Suicide Squad in a way. They're kind of the Suicide Squad of the MCU, although uh, as far as I'm aware, I think the Thunderbolts within the comics came first. Director Jake Schreier will be working on this film um, as the director. Uh, he, You may know him from certain films such as Robot and Frank and uh, Brand New Cherry Flavor. So a lot of Fans and just theorists have been theorizing on who may appear in this film. 
a lot of people are speculating it may be very similar to the comics as they've got characters who we've seen in the MCU such as Elena Belova who we've seen in Black Widow and Hawkeye, uh, Ghost who was in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Abomination from the Incredible Hulk, John Walker who was in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and uh, Taskmaster who we saw in Black Widow. I mean this group is just kind of like from the comics. I think they changed the Avengers because uh, I think like the Wasp was a part of the original lineup there. So it is prone to change. It says here even some Avengers members like Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton or Sebastian Stan's Bucky Barnes could make the list of Thunderbolts characters. I'm not sure if I can fully see that, especially with both of them being characters who've tried so hard to get away from their villainous past, especially Clint Barton in the Hawkeye series and Bucky basically throughout his whole character arc. So the leader of the Thunderbolts has been theorized as being either uh, Baron Zemo or Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who is Val for short, who we see in Falcon and Winter Soldier and a Black Widow post-credit scene. I also have a theory that, you know, there's some way to introduce, you know, the whole uh, Ross um, lineage, like hereditary into this without having Thunderbolt Ross. I feel like they could introduce Betty Ross because we did see... A, did we see Betty Ross in The uh, the Incredible Hulk? Yeah, she was like the main love interest. So, and she uh, turns into Red She-Hulk in the comics, but also Harpy. So, you know, anything's possible. And they're already finally tying back to The Incredible Hulk now with uh, Tim Roth reappearing as Abomination in the upcoming She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Obviously, the late William Hurt appeared multiple times throughout the MCU after The Incredible Hulk. And uh, they had quite a lot of references to it in What If as well. So hopefully we will be seeing more tiebacks of that. I'd really like to see them bring back uh, Leda. Um, because it was something that was hinted at at the end of The Incredible Hulk. After being contaminated by Abomination's blood, basically. Yeah, and it just ended off like that. Kind of basically of a plot twist. And we're here 14 years later now. We still haven't had any sort of resolution to that. Um, I'm, I'd say I'm excited for this film. A um, film... It might be, this is most likely going to be our next sort of team-up film. And when I say team-up film, I mean like a bunch of different characters from different franchises coming together. We have got Fantastic Four coming up, which will probably be before this. But, um, that film is kind of like, it's going to be all new characters to the MCU rather than this potentially bringing together years of characters a film i can tell you that i'm not looking forward to which is in the news which also just has a trailer just been out is black adam now black adam is one of the main adversaries for uh shazam the rock stars is black adam in this but we all know at this point that any film that the rock in he basically stars in himself um and you've got characters in this like atom smasher cyclone dr fate um Hawkman. But yeah, this is kinda more focused around the Justice Society of America. Uh and it kinda looks like it's gonna be based around where uh Black Adam is from. Um but you know, I'm not exactly looking forward to this. I don't know why. It does it feels like it's trying to take itself seriously, but it also still has those comedy elements, but it's also because this is um part of um main continuity like i said I, I don't really support main continuity but 
it kind of relates to what we were saying earlier um, about like DC and gritty films, and now they're kind of turning into comedy um, because they followed. They saw that Marvel had a formula and decided let's copy it, especially with heads like Toby Emmerich and Hamanda. Um, you know, they just it's it's cash. It's easy cash rather than natural quality. Yeah, I mean, like, again, I mentioned this in episode one. I'm not too familiar with the DC Universe anyway. Um, I I might watch it. I might not. I do plan on watching the DC films at some point, uh, just so I can be kept in the loop. Just not in cinemas. Yeah. I mean, if I won't watch, like, Fantastic Beasts in the cinema, I won't watch this either. <laughs> I couldn't care less whether The Rock was in this film or not. It feels like a lot of people who are going to watch this film are probably not even going to be DC fans. It's going to be like, oh, look, I like watching uh, Dwayne Johnson. I feel like uh, what's hypocritical about Black Adam is the fact they've cave uh, rock um, 100% create freedom over this. Yet when someone like Zack Snyder or David Ayer um, wanted creative freedom, they just said no and basically tarnished the work. So, you know... I just uh, I don't think The Rock's funny. Um, I think it tries too hard to be funny, and that's probably what this film's going to fall into a trap of. But speaking of money, we're going back to Jurassic World. Yeah, we're going to finish this episode off um, by full dissing, circle. dissing Jurassic World. Just like we again. started it. Um, so it's just been, well, not really announced. Jurassic World Dominion has become the lowest rated movie of the entire franchise um, on Rotten Tomatoes. How much did it make in the box office? Was it lower uh, than the rest? I don't think it would have been that low. And to be honest... Because oddly enough, it's done well in China because they haven't had their um, cinemas open in a while and now they've just reopened them. According to the internet, the box office is currently $389 million. And Is that good? It's profited, but like at the end of the day, quantity over quality. What truly matters is the ratings, um, and this film has not had great ratings. On Rotten Tomatoes, as of the time that we're recording this, it currently has a 30% critic score. Yikes. The lowest out of any of the Jurassic films um, previously, that was given to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Which had forty seven percent, so this is it's dropped down by seventeen percent from the last film. Compare that to the original Jurassic Park, which had ninety two percent. It's quite a significant drop, and I would hope that Universal would take a uh, look at the ratings rather than the box office, even though they're obviously not going to do that. But yeah. It begs the question, how many years will they wait before they make another Jurassic series? Well, it took them, like, 14 years for Jurassic World. The math worked out. Mid-2030s. We'll see you there for Jurassic Park 7. They're just going to call it Jurassic Park. They're going to forget Jurassic World was a thing. (laughs) I thought it was awful. Um, But do still try and make your own judgment for the film. Go watch the film. It's out in cinemas now. I don't think I want to know. 
I, I, I was going to, but I'm not too sure if I should. My whole inspiration for this podcast was to inspire people to watch films. <laughs> now all I'm doing is talking about how bad they are. Uh, social Network. Watch Social Network. Watch Social Network instead. Watch some good quality films. But that kind of brings us to the uh, the end of the, the podcast. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed. Um, if you did miss the, the last episode, make sure to go check that. Next week, we will be talking about... Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy and maybe a little bit about Spaced maybe some of his other projects as well like Baby Driver um, but yeah so make sure you tune in then we may even have somebody else other than me and Andrew on but if you have any movies that you want to talk want us to talk about in the future please let us know leave a comment on our social channels or uh, email us at so what are we watching at gmail.com um make sure to share with your friends and family and i guess we'll see you next time so that is is done this is jay pollitt and andrew signing out